From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Defense Department's number two IT official is leaving. Deputy Chief Information Officer Essie Miller will retire June 30th after 35 years in government. The intelligence community CIO John Sherman will replace Miller. He's been CIO of the IC for more than two years. The General Services Administration has a list of more than 60 vendors to provide services for employees to come back to work when the government lifts pandemic restrictions. GSA's list includes companies that offer enhanced entry screening services. Federal News Network reports GSA is offering vendor data, capability statements, and sample requests for quote. The health information exchange between the Defense Department and Department of Veterans Affairs is growing. The interim director of the joint office that's managing the DOD VA health records modernization, Dr. Neil Evans, says the expansion includes all third-party community care providers. FedScoop reports the information exchange system is scheduled to migrate to the new Cerner system by the end of this month. The National Institute of Standards and Technology's latest draft of new guidelines for zero-trust architecture came just in time for the coronavirus pandemic. Agencies are looking at zero-trust strategies to keep connections secure as they're teleworking. Ellen Sundra is Vice President of America's System Engineering for Forescout. Ellen, welcome. You're writing about zero-trust in NextGov. What's the importance of zero-trust architecture in a time like now when so many people are accessing agency networks from so many different places? The benefit of the zero-trust architecture is that it really provides the flexibility in applying security controls. When you look at some of the older architects, the perimeter-based security um, architectures that organizations have used historically, it relies on a defined perimeter. And what we're seeing now is that that perimeter is really changing as more people are working from home and um, and it's hard to define. So the, the uh, zero trust architecture really allows us the flexibility in applying security controls to, to the most important data and services that we offer. Uh, so once someone comes in, I can um, apply those security controls based upon their authorization and their access to those. Uh, so it's as we're adapting to this new environment, this new work from home environment, it's really important for us to still be able to secure the most important data and services. You lay out four things in this piece in NextGov that agencies should look at when they're considering their zero trust strategies. And I wanna talk about each of them in turn. The first one that you write about is what's connected. Are you referring to people? Are you referring to applications? Are you referring to devices? Is it all of the above? Is it something else, Ellen? It's all of the above. In order to be able to make these decisions on what is getting access to your network, it's really critical to be able to know what those devices are that are connecting, who's connected to them, what they're trying to access. All of that data is a really important foundational first step. The second thing that you're writing about is who's using the network. Does that just mean people inside the organization? Does it just mean people inside the building? Or does it mean something else? Well, again, all of the above. And that's where zero trust is really critical because 
it, it's really designed for that complexity and those um, different uh, diverse connections. So you're going to have contractors, you're going to have full-time employees, they're gonna be connecting, um, well, right now, mostly remotely, but eventually they're going to return to the network. So we need an architecture that's able to adapt whether or not they're working uh, outside the office, inside the office, who they are, what they're connecting with, all of that information and that intelligence is really an important part of setting those security controls. The third item that you're writing about is what's happening on the network, and you write, agencies need insight into traffic patterns and messages between systems. What's the best way to try to gain that insight, Ellen? Having that information is really important when uh, making those decisions. What I find interesting is we're actually seeing some organizations be able to baseline that data right now because there's nobody on the network. So they're able to see what those IoT devices are doing on the network, what they're communicating to, and get a really solid baseline while the traffic is down on the internal network. Um, but it's important to get that intelligence, to have those tools that can tell you what devices are talking to what other devices and give you that context. Uh, that's going to be a really important part of segmentation uh, projects, which is going to reduce uh, the, the risk of any breach or the expansion of a breach. The fourth and final item that you write that agencies should think about in a zero trust strategy is how is data protected? And again, this is all about, it strikes me, the transition between what you talked about earlier about perimeter-type defenses and now defending data, whether it is moving or sitting still. Is that a fair read? It, absolutely, right? Sometimes, um, you know, we, we need to, to actually take action. The first step is knowing what those devices are and what they're talking to, but it's, it doesn't provide value unless we can actually mitigate that risk. So being able to have some tools that are able to improve your device hygiene or limit what those devices can talk to is a really important step in all of this. Um, and, and it's what you do with that data that's gonna be an important part of this architecture. Um, many times though, that is the, the hardest part of designing that security plan is making those decisions and those uh, policies on what to do about a device that doesn't meet your compliance level or a device that is communicating to other devices that it shouldn't be communicating to. So it's an important part of the overall architecture and sometimes the, the hardest part to make that decision about what to do next. Ellen, we have about 30 seconds left. You write at the end of this piece, COVID-19 will not be the last thing to disrupt normal federal operations. What should we be learning? What should we be keeping track of, paying attention to this time so that whenever the next thing happens, we've learned that lesson and we don't make the same mistakes again? One of the things that we're seeing is that organizations that had policies before don't necessarily translate in this type of situation. Uh, so for instance, you might've said your VPN users were only allowed to have a certain uh, access to certain devices when they're working from home. Well, in this type of situation, that doesn't necessarily apply. So we need to think beyond just the current state on home users only have particular access. If you're on the network, you have different access. We need to look holistically and determine if I do have an extended period where people are working outside of the office, what do those policies look like? What types of devices are we gonna allow access to? Who are we gonna, allow access to what resources, and make sure that's part of our overall policy set. 
Ellen Sundra, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you on. Up next, using commercial technology in the Defense Department. Straight ahead on Government Matters, where the trend is going and how the venture market is following. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. This Industry Matters segment is brought to you by BDO. The Defense Department's more vocal than ever about wanting to use commercial technology off the shelf or adapt commercial technology instead of growing what it needs from scratch. Companies of all sizes are watching the startup market for technologies and the Pentagon is watching where those companies are placing their bets. Chris Moran is vice president of Lockheed Martin Corporation and executive director and GM of LM Ventures. Peter Newell is CEO of BMNT. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks for coming on. Chris, I want to start with you. What does the landscape look like in the venture market now for companies that are trying to penetrate the defense space? Well, I think it's quite attractive. Um, I think what we've seen recently is kind of a flip in terms of how, how, how companies approach this space. Years ago, it was uh, defense first and then commercial second. And now I see a lot of companies going the other way around. A lot of technologies advance rather rapidly in the commercial space and then are attractive to the Defense Department. Pete, is the department getting easier for companies to work with, new companies who haven't worked with the Pentagon before? I, I think in, in many cases, um, yes. In others, it, it's still very, very hard. Um, for instance, the... Uh, the use of SBIRs and the, you know, as, as organizations like AFWorks, the, the Air Force uh, folks, and the Office of Naval Research and the Army Applications Lab have actually reduced the barrier for folks to get involved. Uh, at the same time, you know, the, that very large jump from doing research and development work to, to better understand problems and potential technologies is improving the the jump from there to a program or record is, is still a pretty big leap there's still a lot of work left to be done pete is it possible that there are too many entry points now you mentioned some of the different vehicles some of the different entry points that startup companies can use to try to pitch their ideas and i wonder if we might be hitting a saturation point or if at some point in the future there might be a saturation point where there are too many places for companies to figure out where the right spot for their technology might be. I, I would say there's a lot of conflicting information about what the best routes are. Uh, I don't, you know, if you did this in the commercial world, you know, there are thousands and thousands of potential ways to get into a, um, to work on a technology and start a company. Um, on the government's perspective, they're getting better at providing those entry points. However, they're still unclear what's best for what things, because quite frankly, that takes a lot of experience. Uh, I think as the government grows a set of uh, experienced entrepreneurial uh, managers, folks who are involved in that process, they will learn to communicate more clearly and actually you know, reduce some of the barriers of understanding that, that lots of those companies need to, to, to help them find the right pathway. Chris, what makes a technology attractive to investors? Are they looking for something that the department has already said, absolutely, we want this? Or are they looking for something that 
they can at least see a, a, a use case, a business case for the department to use, even if the department hasn't said, yes, we absolutely want this. Yeah, I think that's what I alluded to previously, that uh, commercial traction is really important because these investors are looking for a big return. So the combination of a defense need and a commercial market is really what venture capital investors are looking for. I want to get both of your inputs on this question, but Chris, I'll start with you first. What has to change and who has to change it to grease the skids here, to make this process easier for everybody, easier for the companies to present their technology, easier for the investors to support those companies, easier for the department to get the technology that it needs? Well, I, I think the department's done a tremendous amount these last several years. Uh, there, as you mentioned before, there's so many entry points so many opportunities to meet with the principal in the, in the defense now, pitch fest and, and invitations and so on. But in the early phases of a startup company where they're trying to figure out what they do and how to do it, they tend to pivot and change their focus a little bit, which doesn't always align with the DOD needs. So I think there's just understanding how to work with these companies in their formative phases and how they develop is an important part of, of, of learning how to work in the venture capital community. Pete, what do you think needs to change and who needs to change it to make this easier, to make this whole process work easier and, and better? You know, I think the, the government clearly needs to grow a set of entrepreneurial managers within all of the organizations. And by entrepreneurial managers, I mean people who are experienced at building things, who understand how their organizations work, how they buy things, how money moves, um, what the needs are who also understand the investment world and understand how to, to build companies and, and have that kind of experience. Yeah, and right now, you, you have one or the other. You have people who are expert in the government, you have people who are expert in building companies, and, and they're not the same. In some cases, the government's making progress by bringing people from the outside uh, to work in some of these organizations, uh, but that's not necessarily changing the culture internally to them. You know, when program managers and platoon leaders and, and you know, sergeants and people like that feel like they're entrepreneurs and, and truly understand the system, I, I think the government will become a much better uh, partner in this process to company. Pete Newell, Chris Moran, thanks both very much for joining me. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Thank Francis. Up next, Defense Innovation Unit, helping contractors during the coronavirus. Straight ahead on Government Matters, using other transaction authorities to force action. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back. The Defense Innovation Unit is using other transaction authorities for production now. A new contract will provide reporting on threat intelligence for Cyber Command. Nick Sinai, senior advisor at Insight Partners and former deputy chief technology officer of the United States. Nick, what's the significance of this contract and some of the other work that DIU is doing lately? Hey, Francis, great to see you again. So I think this, this kind of contract is really exciting. And the one that you mentioned, uh, Recorded Future, it's a great example of Cyber Command looking for a commercial product like threat intelligence, uh, trying it out, and then with the help of DIU actually scaling uh, across the services. So it's, it, it's a really uh, interesting how DIU has moved from just doing prototype via OT authority 
to actually being able to scale uh, commercial next generation technology across the services and across the DoD. This strikes me as the uh, kind of the evolution of the fulfillment of the vision of DIU originally. What the original intent seemed to be was we're going to create these prototypes, we're going to scale, or, or we're going to give them away, pass them off to scale up. It strikes me this is the place now where the scaling is going to happen. Is that a fair read on my part, Nick? Yeah, absolutely, Francis. I it's, it's one of those things where it's hard enough to try uh, new commercial technology, and DIU does a really nice job of, of um, working inside the Defense Department to help um, find that demand signal and scope those requirements uh, and collapse them so that they're more approachable to industry, but then also hiring people from the, the tech, sender, tech cent, uh, centers and from, from industry to make sure that they can go out and articulate uh, and look for next generation uh, uh, commercial technologies. And so how do you marry the, de the demand signal inside the Defense Department and those leading commercial technologies in a, uh, in a really a transformative way, not just a, a simple pilot way, but how can you scale those technologies to really have an impact on the warfighter? But I keep hearing from these innovation units all across government, whether it's in the Defense Department or in the civilian agencies, is we're gonna try to leverage this coronavirus as an opportunity to do things that we wouldn't maybe have been able to do or wouldn't have been able to do as quickly in the pre-corona world. What do you think the best ways are to do that and what are the best resources that exist for organizations in government to be able to do that, Nick? Well, I don't know about that DOD-wide, but for DIU, I know that they are, I mean, they've been set up to work with industry, they use commercial tools, they are, are distributed as an organization anyways. And so if anything, they've actually been accelerating during, during coronavirus. I think they've done 19 contracts this year, which is more than they've done all of last year. Uh, they've issued guidance to uh, their suppliers, these next generation commercial technology companies, uh, that they're part of the critical infrastructure. And so uh, we see not just business as usual, but almost an acceleration and a continued uh, growth of DIU even in these these troubling times. It, what's fascinating to me about this business as usual idea is that business as usual for DIU is starting to become business as usual for the other organizations in the Defense Department too. I mean that change of the culture and the rapidity of the change of the culture is striking to me. Some of the things that we're seeing coming out of Ellen Lord's office are similar to the kinds of things that we saw out of DIU in the past and, and she's kind of institutionalizing those. Is that a fair read, do you think? That's a fair characterization. And she's actually given DIU uh, its own uh, contracting authority. And so that is a, um, a real symbol of, of success uh, for DIU. I think they've done something like 150 uh, awards since uh, 2016. Uh, and, and then like 120 of those have been what the Defense Department calls non-traditional. Uh, and, and over half of those have been uh, ones that are completely new to the Defense Department. But to your point, Francis, it, it's also about how other transaction authority and this culture of trying and buying from, from the next generation of commercial technology, you know, whether it's AI, autonomy, cyber, human systems, space, all of those, those particular areas, um, you, you see that starting to be institutionalized. And, and I think that's exciting DIU is a, is a huge untold success story in my mind, especially in, in the last few years uh, as it's getting its uh, sea legs. Uh, but how, 
how this continues to affect the rest of DOD and how DOD uh, tends to change its acquisition culture, I think will be kind of an even bigger legacy of success here. What would you like to see to perpetuate that success story? What would you like to see to make sure that DIU continues to have the success that you've seen in it so far and that others have seen in it so far, Nick? Yeah, I, I think there's already this, this, this legacy where you see um, uh, folks who have worked at DIU, and in fact, Kessel Run was came from DIU, right? It was, it was a uh, rogue colonel, Colonel Odie, who actually founded Kessel Run with some airmen out of DIU. So you see this, this legacy of, of, of first and second generation offspring uh, inside of the, the DOD. What I'm really looking for is, uh, can we make DIU so successful that it's almost irrelevant, right? Can we actually train the rest of DOD and reform the culture that, sure, we have this great joint unit that is, is doing a fantastic job um, uh, scoping problems and, 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 and working with venture capitalists, startups, and scale-ups, but we also want to get this into the DNA of the rest of the Defense Department. And so there's this kind of audacious vision uh, the former managing director, Raj Shah, used to say, you know, he wanted to put himself out of business. Um, and I, I, I love the way DIU thinks, thinks that way is, yes, they, they have this, this uh, ambitious plan, but they also, uh, they're going to make their biggest mark if they can actually change the Defense Department. Nick Sinai, thanks very much for coming on. Great to see you. Thanks, Francis. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available now as an audio podcast. You can get it every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn, or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. In tonight's event spotlight, the Burbiz Veteran and Military Spouse Resource Event features virtual networking and resources for veterans and spouses. The event includes speakers like New York Times bestselling author Gary Vaynerchuk, Medal of Honor recipient Clint Ramisha, and a lot more. The event's happening virtually Wednesday, April 29th from 8 to 9.30. You can sign up online at burbiz.com. That's the latest from Washington. Join us weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.